You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. As we take up this new sermon series called Full, we'll we'll be meditating on uh, the book of Colossians for four Sundays in a row. But I want to begin this morning with an interaction with Jesus in a house. Let's start with this house because, uh, well, two reasons. First of all, this house is full. And the story is all about full, a full house, full life, full worship. But secondly, I think this house gives us a great model, actually, as God is calling us to new ways of being his people and using Sundays together as we gather uh, as a congregation. So we're going to reflect on uh, this incident in a house, and we'll do it in three little segments. We're going to break it up, and my sermon will be broken up, and we'll move through uh, this sermon in three parts as we worship this morning. But the first movement here is called gather. We see here Jesus creates community in worship. Let's look at the story. Would you take out your Bible with me and open up to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12? If you're looking at the Pew Bible, you find this text on page 813. And if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's Word aloud together as His people. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's Holy Word. It's about Jesus. Mark chapter 2. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts, which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. If you'll let me this morning, I want to begin with a story where Mark does not. I don't want to begin with full, but, but rather with empty. 
I don't want to begin with gather, but rather with the one man who's not gathered. Because all the way across town, there's a guy who's ill. He's on a bed, probably in the dark, maybe sleeping. And that one guy, I want to tell you this. Mark doesn't tell you this, but I want to tell you this. That one guy does not want to gather. He doesn't want to do it. And when that door opens and there's light flooding in on him and a group of people crowd into his little room and begin to lay their hands on his body, he says, no, I'm not going with you. And they smile. And this smile kind of bothers him, by the way. What are they so happy about? There's some kind of creepy joy thing going on in them. And they say, no, we're going to take you. And he says, I'm not going. And he says, we're going to take you. And they begin to pull him off that bed and lay him in this thing. It's a mat. It's like a stretcher. Um, and he's fighting with all that he's got. But he's paralyzed, remember. So there's not a lot he can do but use his words. And they pick him up and they carry him. He didn't want to go. He doesn't want to be slept across town in the cold. He doesn't want to be a part of a little parade that's going to butt into uh, a teaching moment that's happening. It's so crowded that there are people who are queued up outside surrounding this house. And as these friends start to nudge through the crowd, they start to say, hey, we were here first. This is my spot. I've been here all day. I'm hoping to get in there. And they go, sorry. And they very awkwardly push this paralytic through. And he doesn't want to be a battering ram through a crowd. Nor does he want to be lifted over everybody's head as everyone's going, what in the world? Nor does he want to be hoisted on top of a roof or lowered down inside like some kind of a Cirque du Soleil freak of a freak show in front of everybody who's trying just to get a little message from Jesus. He doesn't want to go. How do I know that? Well, it's not in the Bible. But I know it because of human nature. And I know it because I know myself. And I want to tell you, I don't want to be gathered either. When I was first getting to know who Jesus was, there were a group of lovely people on the crew with me. I was in college. And they would come to my dorm room and they'd say, George, we want you to come with us. We have an ice cream social Christian athletes here. They meet in your hall in the lounge. And I would come up with an excuse every single week. Very creative. I did creative writing. A great excuse every single, for a year. I can't go. I didn't want to go. It's not that I didn't know that I had deep need in my life. In fact, it was precisely because I I knew I had deep need in my life that I didn't want to go. I didn't want that need to surface. I was too proud. So I was, I was too ashamed of who I really was. And I thought, you get me in a context like that, they're going to find out. Better keep my head down. And to be honest, I don't want to gather here on Sunday either. I mean, I want to be with you. I love it when our family reconnects. But you know the hardest thing for me every week as I put together my sermon is anticipating having to stand up here in the vulnerability of being here and having to acknowledge before you that I am not as full a person as you might want your pastor to be. As a husband, as a father, as a follower of Jesus Christ, my life is much emptier than I dare to confess. And and I don't want to have to say that. So, But I come. Uh, You pay me to come, and so I'm here. (laughs) Actually, and I go, you know, I gather. I'm a part of a small group. I meet every Wednesday. I show up. It's oftentimes in my house, so it's kind of hard to to miss. But the question is, do I bring myself? Do I bring who I really am? Why do I bring my facade, my Christian facade, my slick, fine, and beautiful facade, carrying that leather-bound, zipped Bible, and, hey, brother, 
Uh, <laughs> or do I come in pain? Like I really live the rest of the week. I don't want to be gathered. That's why I know this guy. He's been abused as a, as a physically handicapped person. He doesn't want more of that. He doesn't want to be in front of people. He doesn't want more publicity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book, Life Together, Sin demands to have you by yourself. It withdraws you from the community. The more isolated you are, the more destructive will be the power of sin over you. And the more deeply you become involved in it, the more disastrous your isolation. It's a cycle, he's saying. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of the person. He doesn't want to gather, but this is what Jesus is doing. He's gathering people. Jesus creates community. And here's the point. All of us need others to carry us to the feet of Jesus. That's what I needed, and that's what I continue to need, and you're a part of that for me. And I want to be bold enough to say, you need the same thing. You need other people who, to overcome your resistance to gather into the presence of Jesus. You need other people to carry you to his feet. It's okay, we all do, but it's true of you. It takes a community. And that's what Jesus is creating in this moment, in this house. He's speaking the word, Mark tells us. He, which means he's teaching good news. Say, I've got good news for you, broken people. I've got great hope for you. I've got a life that's full, and it's for you. He's creating a community where that fullness can find expression. This is good theology. Remember, we worship a God who is three persons in one eternal communion. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in joyful community with one another for all of eternity. And so when Jesus shows up to give us the face of God in time and space, we ought not to be surprised that the first thing he wants to do is gather us into that communion. That's what his word does. He's the living word. He uses the printed word to call us into community. He used the enacted word of the sacraments, baptism and the, and the Lord's Supper. To gather us into community? Jesus just does that. In fact, in the next chapter, Mark chapter 3, he's back in the house again. He's doing his thing, sharing good news with people. And uh, his mother and his brothers show up. You know, he had a big family. And they send someone inside to say, it's time for Jesus to come out. Would you send? And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looks around the room. And he sees the likes of you and me. And he says, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. These. He redefines his own primary family as those who hear his word. See, we come into a family when we hear his word. Brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me ask you, how do we let Jesus gather us into community here at University Presbyterian Church? Even more personally, who here knows you well enough and cares for you deeply enough to carry you to the feet of Jesus. This is our house. It's our sanctuary. Uh, we gather here for a great celebration every Sunday. But look around the room. There are about 1,100 of you right here now. How many of these names do you know? How many of these people know your name? I mean, not that many, right? And the first step to being in a family relationship with someone is to know their name and then to know something about them. 
and then to love them. We can't experience the gathering that Jesus is doing in order to make our lives full until the house is small enough so that that can happen. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that here at UPC, we need to make the house smaller. One way to do that is through what I call big groups. We have a number of these already. We have a big group for high school, uh, middle school kids, actually called The Rock. We have a big group for those who are 50 and over called Second Wind. We have a big group for college students called The Inn. These meet every week. And we could have many more, and I think we need to. The big group is a place in which there's Christian education that happens. There's lay leadership that rises to the surface. There's connection to a mission in the world. There's body life that's inspired by the Holy Spirit of Jesus. And there's a family who knows and loves each other, is at work in the world together. I know this is nothing new to us here at University of Presbyterian Church. In fact, I went back and I did a little research. And over the decades, we've had many big groups. In the 1940s, for example, there was a big group called Sky Masters. These are men returning from the war and their wives gathered every week. Do we have any Sky Masters here this morning? We had some at 8.30. I don't see any hands yet. Oh, come on, raise them up. Be proud. There, here they are, the Sky Masters. They're still sitting together. And that's amazing to me. I didn't plan that, but there you are. The Sky Masters are still there from the 1940s. We had the Koinonia, which is young professional women meeting together. We had Calvin Club, which is what we call our college students' big group at that time. We had Ambassadors, which is for young adults. Mariners, for young married. Sounds like a bunch of frequent flyer programs to me. In the 1960s, we had Voyagers, which was for senior citizens. We had Couriers, which is for that age right after college, where Natalie was. Uh, Discoverers. Uh, those were singles who were 30 and older. We had Divorce Lifeline, those who were recovering from divorce, a community for them. In the 1980s, we had Single Parent Slash Professional Network, a group of young single moms who encouraged one another and did ministry together. We had a group called TAG. This reminds me of Seattle, tongue-in-cheek. It was TAG, what meant the, the affinity group. That's all we are. We're just an affinity group for singles and for couples. And then Cornerstone for young adults. And many of you here uh, participated in Cornerstone. What would a 21st century version of that look like? These don't always gather around age and stage. They get various affinities, like um, geography. I know some of you who live in Maple, Maple Leaf are saying, hey, maybe we need to get together and form a big group, get our small groups together. As some of you who are really committed to global mission would love to meet every Sunday in a big group where professors from F SPU or Fuller or pastors come and share with you theology of global mission and, what, and stories of what God is doing at large in the world. Wouldn't that be great? Well, I want to call you to that. You're the ministers of this church, and I want to invite you to dream about what that might look like as we form new big groups that gather around Jesus and his good news. As we continue in worship, I want to ask you to reflect for a moment. You might even bow your head, close your eyes if you like. In fact, I want to ask you to think about asking God a question. Ask him this question. God, who have you put in my life to carry me? to the feet of Jesus. The second movement is go. Jesus gathers us around him, and then some break off. Here we see that worshiping communities love their neighbors. Apparently, there's a small group of people for whom gathering around Jesus is not enough. Imagine being face-to-face -face with Jesus, being able to ask whatever question you want. I mean, being there in the room and listening to the master of the universe teach, what a great sermon this must have been, and, and yet saying, you know what, I think we got to go. What are they thinking? Well, what they're thinking is, as they hear Jesus' good news, someone else who's not gathered begins to come to mind. I think there's this guy 
who lives in my neighborhood. He lives across town. I hardly ever see him. But I've looked through his window and I can tell he's paralyzed. He's not well. And when I hear Jesus say all these things about the renewal of all creation and share such hope that makes our hearts glow, I can't just sit here. I've got to go. I've got to go get this guy. And the room is so racked and stacked and packed. I have no idea how they get out of that place and butt through that crowd. But they do. A group of them leaves, men and women. At least four of them, probably even more. And they go across town. They, they go Now, Jesus sees them. We read in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, and they just lowered this guy through the ceiling. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if, if I'm one of those four guys, straining for all my life on that rope, and hoping I don't get sucked through that hole, and I hear Jesus say that, I'm going, What? Your sins are forgiven? Man, we want this guy healed. There's no way we're walking, we're carrying him home. You know, he walks or he stays right here in this house. That's it. That's the way I Sins are forgiven. The other thing you want to notice is what Jesus, what Mark tells us. When Jesus saw their faith, he, he didn't see the paralytic's faith. He looks up at that hole. He looks up on those four lines and he sees four red-faced men, I think. And the sun shining behind him. He goes, wow. Now that's faith. And what does he see when he sees their faith? Well, he's not perceiving their faith. Notice that he does that in verse 8. He perceives in his spirit what the scribes are thinking. But he doesn't perceive their faith. He sees it. He sees their faith, Mark says. I, I can see it for myself. What does he see? He sees a group of guys who, as I told you, overcame the resistance of the paralytic, overcame the distance from this house, overcame the hostility of the crowds. By the way, in Mark's gospel, the crowds almost always a negative thing that keep people from Jesus. They burst through the crowds who are saying, this is our place and we're here first. They, they climb on. How do you get a paralytic on a roof anyways? I mean, even if there is a staircase, I don't think it's ADA approved. And they get this guy up there on the, on the roof. And they begin to dig through the surface, waterproofed with plaster. They break the plaster apart. By the way, the owner of this house is undoubtedly inside. He would deserve a first front row seat. And he's beginning, as he hears the demolition on his roof, to get furious. He goes, if I can get my hands on those guys' neck. They know that, but they know that he can't get to the door. And so they've got about 15 minutes to make this gig work, right? <laughs> And so they begin to take apart the plaster and the moss and the branches and pretty soon the beams. And mind you, as they do this, they are dropping stuff on Jesus. Jesus is getting silt and dirt. The Savior is now wearing dirt. That's how much risk they're willing to take. This is what Jesus sees. It seems ridiculously crazy, socially awkward, physically draining, structurally costly, criminally negligent. And Jesus says, I see it as faith. I see your faith. These are people who say, I don't know what Jesus will do when we get him there. But I know whether it's the forgiveness or healing, Jesus will do whatever he needs. And all we've got to do is let nothing come between our friend and Jesus. Whatever it takes, we're going to do it. You can't erect a barrier that would keep us from bringing our friend to Jesus. And Jesus calls that faith. Earl Palmer, our pastor emeritus, wrote a poem in which he writes, I know a house that took me in to send me out. And he's absolutely right. 
And that's what worship is all about. It takes us in to send us out. We go. The worship service is just the beginning of the service of worship. It just starts here. It's not so much that God's church has a mission. It's that God's mission has a church. Jesus is active in the world. He sends a community of communities to love their neighbors. And this is an attempt to, uh, to draw this, if I can make this work. Um, picture of, I love technology, um, a picture of our neighborhood, which shows our houses interspersed with other houses. And uh, we need to open the door. We need to get out of this house. We made the house small when we gathered, but we, now we need to get outside of it and we need to go to our neighbors. And when we knock on their doors and we find that, that we care for them in the midst of their need, Jesus is already at work. He's already there in their lives too, drawing them deeper into worship themselves. We need to get out of our house. So how can Sundays, how can we use Sundays to get out of our house here at UPC? I want to suggest two ways for you. One is equipping. In these big groups, we have the capacity to be equipped for our minister. Every member here is a minister. And so we need to figure out, how do we do that? What is that like? Equip me for that. What gifts has God given me? What is it? How do I carry people into the presence of Jesus at work, in my neighborhoods, at school? Well, we're going to equip one another in these big groups. The second thing after equipping is hospitality. Reaching out and welcoming people here. We do it in the service. We do it in the narthex. We do it in Larson. We do it all over the place. We do it in our big groups. Do you know that just a, a few weeks ago, some of us broke off and started a new big group for young marrieds? It's in the evening. We've only met twice. They've only met twice. They already have 27 couples. 27 couples. People are hungry to connect with Jesus and to one another. But By the way, most of those 27 couples do not currently attend worship at University Presbyterian Church. We're reaching out. Uh, the second uh, thing, um, in, in, the, in terms of hospitality and worship, we're, we're, you know, we're going to adjust our service times. And I won't talk about that today, but uh, we talked about that last week. But I want you to know, there are two things we've discovered as we've had literally thousands of conversations around this church on worship. The first thing we've discovered is that um, people like what they like. That didn't get us very far, but we heard a lot of that. <laughs> the second thing we've heard, and this is the thing that's really moved us, and I've been so impressed with this in you. People said, you know, if this is not about me, if this is not about us, I'm in. I mean, if this is about our children, if this is about our grandchildren, if this is about our young families, if this is about the future generation of those in Seattle who are crazy about Jesus, then call me crazy, I'm going to go. And share hospitality with them. That's the kind of church we have here in the University Presbyterian Church. If this is about people who are not yet here experiencing the fullness of hope in Jesus Christ, let's do it. Let's take a moment now and again, quietly ask God a question. Ask him this, if you would. God, who in my neighborhood, your physical neighborhood, your virtual neighborhood, but who in my neighborhood can I carry to the feet of Jesus? Well, there's one more thing. Jesus gathers us. He sends us out as we go. But then there's the glory. Are you picking up the narrative thread here? Jesus creates community and worship. Worshiping communities love their neighbors. And finally, number three, outreaching communities energize worship. Now, there's a new kind of worship that happens here in Mark chapter 2. Marva Don, pastor, was greeting her parishioners at the end of the a service, she's standing there, and 
A man came through the line and shook her hand. He said to her, I didn't like that last hymn. And she said, she said, well, we didn't sing it for you. <laughs> and, I, and we we forget that, don't we? Oh, yeah. Worship's not for me. They're not singing for me. It's not about me. Worship is about God and His glory. It's about the wild and wonderful glory of God running riot through His creation in Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit at work. Heaven help us for letting church ever get boring. And let's be honest, church can be boring. Uh, it even happened in the first century when the Apostle Paul was giving a sermon at night in the second floor of a house and one of the youth, Eutychus, drops off to sleep and drops out of the house, crashes onto the floor. But there's nothing boring about worship in this house in Mark chapter 2, is there? I mean, this is dramatic. And why? Well, it's not because of the sermon. And trust me, this is Jesus preaching. It was a good sermon. Not because of the music. There's no record of any music here. Not because of the candles or the mood. What makes this energizing worship is the presence of God. And they can see Him now. That's what glory is. It's, it's a sense that I can see God at work. And his work is very apparent in this house. He'd been talking about forgiveness a lot. And someone apparently thinks, well, talk is cheap. You can talk about forgiveness all you want. And Jesus goes, bam, you get up and walk. And they go, now, we have never seen anything like that before. And all of a sudden, they know he's forgiven, he's healed, and we're forgiven, and we're being healed also. And they were all amazed. Now, that makes worship pretty compelling. Those who are gathered and those who go, they now have a story to tell of the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. And when we come back together and we start to share that story, wow, that's worship. We have a new perception that God is real. That he's here with us right now. He's healing us. The same thing happens today. Two quick examples. Monday, Thursday. Have you gathered with us recently? Monday, Thursday. I'll tell you what. When we started planning the service, we thought it would be very quiet and contemplative. We couldn't even believe it. The room filled up and was so noisy. Why? Because everyone was coming off of six weeks of small group community together. They'd had an experience of the family. And this was like a reunion. Everyone was like, hey, it's good to see you. you know? And then as we went to the communion table by small groups, we saw all kinds of people who are new faces and friends here at UPC. We're taking communion for the first time. I had to explain what the bread and how the cup works. That's energetic. So we see God at work right in front of our eyes. Come back tonight. This is the other example. 5 p.m. You're going to see our, our middle school kids and our high school kids. Some are going to sit right up there and others are going to sit right down here. And you're going to hear energetic worship. Why? Because they come in as a community that's gathered and sent. The hour before, they're together. They're talking about how Jesus has been at work in their lives. They've carried Jesus, uh, carried each other to Jesus and carried others uh, to Jesus. And they're sharing stories of that. And when they sing now, they mean it. One of the great things about University Presbyterian Church is we're an intergenerational community. When our big groups come together in this house, it blows the roof off. We are exposed to God's glory. When the young and old and diverse of every kind come together. So many people today have used this for a worship service, our smartphones. Changing the world, this technology, just like uh, the printing press changed the world, the Reformation in the 16th century. And it, it can be wonderful, but it can also be very dangerous. Why? Because now you can put together the, uh, a list of the best preachers in the world. You don't have to listen to me. 
Uh, you can put together your own playlist of your favorite songs, and you can have those, can't you? You can put it, even visual artwork that you want to watch videos as you worship. You can do that. But, but look, be very careful because worship is never meant to reinforce your biases and prejudices. Worship is meant to overturn them. And that's what happens when a diverse group of people gets together. A lot of churches in Seattle are, are very strong in any one demographic. But we've got all the generations here. At our elder meeting session this week, Jeff Vansel, who as far as I can tell is in his 50s, really old guy, and Chris, John, and Alex, who are in their 20s, they're college students at the University of Washington, they came to the elders, they wanted us to know what, it was, what they were experiencing as the generations were connecting. Do you know that we have about 20 families, most of them UPCers, who've moved into the U District to be close to students? 20 families. They, they, they live here now. And we have about 120 university students, Project 16, the 17th Avenue house, who live in intentional community with one another and with those families. And believe me, when the young and the old, they get together for worship, that is energizing. And that is dynamic. And that's what we do here at University Presbyterian Church. God's glorified as we share our stories with one another. So, if someone were to ask you, there's a lot of disruption going on here on Sundays. Why are we doing this? Here's your answer. Gather, go, and glorify. Jesus is gathering us. Jesus is sending us. And Jesus is glorifying himself through us. That's how Sundays will fulfill our mission to share hope in Jesus Christ. And I understand it's a disruptive process. It will be a little bit messy as we go through it. But remember this, in Mark chapter 2, they had to take a roof apart. That was somebody's house. He lost his roof that day. His family lost shelter that day. But nobody, nobody remembers this as a bad roof day. This is a day that everybody remembers uh, as a day that somebody was healed. And we saw God's glory. Nobody regrets it. Not the owner of the house, not the person on the stretcher, not the people who were there first, not the scribes. All of them glorify God. We've never seen anything like this. So here's my final question. Do you want to be a part of the miracle? Friend, we want you to be a part of the miracle. Sister and brother, we need you to be a part of this miracle. That's how we'll share hope in Jesus Christ together. I want to close with a poem. A poem uh, by... Will Allen Dromgool. It's called The Bridge Builder. It goes like this. An old man going a lonely way came at the evening cold and gray to a chasm vast and deep and wide. The old man crossed in the twilight dim. The sullen stream had no fear for him, but he turned when safe on the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, said a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your strength with building here. Your journey will end with the ending day. You never again will pass this way. You've crossed the chasm deep and wide, then why build a bridge to span the tide? The builder lifted his old gray head. Good friend, in the path I've come, he said, there followeth after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way. This chasm that has been naught to me, to a fair-head youth may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I am building this bridge for him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus Christ,
you have spanned the greatest of chasms to come and be with us. Through your death and resurrection, you have swept us into eternal communion. You've marked us the waters of baptism. You've sustained us at your table. And now you send us out to go, to go and welcome others into your love as well. So bless us and equip us and empower us and help us to figure out what it looks like to be your people in the world today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.